I know not everyone loves the technology, and it's not as good as being in person, maybe, but there is an opportunity that if you are feeling like you need to be home because maybe the weather's not quite great or you're not feeling well or you just really want to stay in for the night um, because of COVID or whatever your reasoning might be, we do have that opportunity. And within the next week or two, you'll be seeing an email that will have the link to that. Uh, and anyone is welcome to join. Uh, right now it's been about six of us that have been with each other each Wednesday on Zoom. Uh, and it's been really great. It's been a really good way to fellowship. So even if you can't get the fellowship here for whatever reason, um, whether I'm talking to you here or the, you online, we do have that option, and we'd love to have you start joining us for that Zoom meeting on Wednesday nights. And that usually starts at 7.15, and we get done between 8 and 8.15 uh, each Wednesday night. So uh, that is going to start happening again next Wednesday. Um, Epic. Uh, I announced it last week. I'm going to announce it again. Epic Teens. We're not meeting tonight. But next week, Epic Teens is meeting, and we're also going to be doing our Christmas celebration with each other next Sunday night. So also bring a white elephant gift, and we're going to be doing that if you're a teenager. Don't just show up because you want to do a white elephant exchange. Uh, if you want to do that, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, find some people that want to do that with you and, and do it. But um, see, I'm starting to fill my time. Is it almost 11? Let's see. I got two minutes left. Uh, who else? Uh, any questions? Uh, I should have prepared a stand-up routine, maybe. Uh, no, okay, no questions on anything. All right, well, then I'm going to give you a, a minute and a half to talk, I guess. And uh, Merry Christmas again, Happy New Year, and looking forward to hearing what uh, Pastor Justin has to share. Since we do have one minute or so uh, left, I can add one announcement just as a reminder uh, as well for Sunday evenings. We do have a small group that gathers here on Sunday evenings to discuss the sermon from the morning, and it's usually a good time of fellowship and discussion and going deeper and praying together, and we would love to have anybody who would like to join us. We're here in the auditorium from 6 to 7-ish, and... You're welcome to join us for that uh, this evening. We will be meeting uh, as well. Why don't we pray together, and then we will open the Scriptures this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together as family this morning. We're grateful for the gift that you have given us of your Son. Thank you so much for your love for us that's on display As we look to Jesus, we thank you for his coming, his arrival in this world as a little baby. We enjoy the time that we get every year to focus in on that moment, on that event, the beginning of the good news that you have uh, accomplished for us. And so we come today full of gratitude, full of joy, reflecting on what you've done for us, and we want to make the most of it. We want to wrap up 2020 in a way that shows our faith in you. We want to look forward to 2021 in a way that shows our faith in you. 
So would you fill us up with that this morning as we look at Jesus and we listen to him pray? Would you help us reorient our own praying? We want to know you better, Father. We want to converse with you and commune with you better. So would you challenge us? Would you help us? Would you draw us close to yourself? Help us to see the intimacy that your son has with you and see that as an invitation for us to join in and to have that intimate relationship with you. We thank you for the things that you show us here in this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the wonderful insight and glimpse into your character, into who you are and what you were doing before the world was created, and the great wonder of your love for us that's on display. You've loved us just as you love your Son. Help us to marvel, help us to worship as we open this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus prays. Just let that statement sink in for a moment. The sinless Son of God prays. The four Gospels refer to Jesus praying many times, but only a handful of times do we get to know exactly what Jesus prays exactly what he said to his father when he prayed. John 17 contains the longest such prayer. That, Jesus prays, shows us how like us he really was, needy, dependent on his father. But what Jesus prayed calls us to be like him more than we are. This prayer contains... 612 English words counted in the ESV, which reflects 486 Greek words. It takes about three minutes to read aloud, yet we could spend our entire lives mining the treasures from it. At the same time, there's a simplicity to the prayer. You'll find an outline in your sermon notes. I hope you got those in your bulletin. You can take a look at that for just a moment. The prayer can be divided simply into three sections as Jesus prays for three different groups. The first five verses have Jesus praying for himself. In verses 6 to 19, we read of Jesus praying for his disciples, primarily focusing on the 11 men who were there with him that night. And in verses 20 to 26, he prays for the future church all those who will believe in him because of the ministry that the 11 apostles will begin after Jesus departs. Within these three sections, Jesus makes seven specific requests. Now, truly, we could count them differently. Many students of Scripture count six requests. The first time I worked through the passage, I counted eight requests. But for now, I've settled in my own mind that there are seven requests or petitions, and I'd like to focus on them this morning. What does Jesus request from the Father? It's interesting to see how much repetition there is in what Jesus says here, and it's interesting to see how much Jesus says that's not strictly making requests, asking his Father to do things. He's really just speaking to his Father, and in the course of his talk, he makes seven specific requests. Now, let me say a brief word about what to call this prayer. I've entitled this sermon, The Lord's Prayer, which probably reminds you of a different prayer recorded for us in the Scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount. We often refer to the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples there in the Sermon on the Mount as the Lord's Prayer. 
However, I personally prefer to think of it as the disciples' prayer, since it's a prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, and is not a prayer that he himself would have prayed, at least not in its entirety. Now, you may have a heading in your Bible, or you may have heard this prayer in John 17 referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. There are three reasons from the prayer itself that this is a good title. First, it was the function of the high priest to intercede with God for the people of Israel. So Jesus intercedes for his people. Second, two elements of the famous high priestly prayer of Aaron, the original high priest of Israel, come out in Jesus' prayer. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, contains the words of a famous blessing that Aaron the high priest was to pray for the people of Israel. May Yahweh bless you and protect you. May Yahweh make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look with favor on you and give you peace. Jesus prays that the Father will protect or keep the disciples in verses 11 and 15 of John 17. Also, Numbers 6.27 adds a statement about the purpose of that prayer or blessing. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Similarly, Jesus will ask the Father to keep the disciples in His name, which is the name God gave to Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The third reason high priestly prayer is an appropriate title for Jesus' prayer in John 17 is the sacrificial language he uses in verse 19. Jesus says he sanctifies or consecrates himself for the sake of his disciples. Likewise, the high priest in the Old Testament must sanctify himself for his duties. We'll see that Jesus actually intends something more by His self-sanctification. But the least we can say is that Jesus does pray as a true high priest would pray. I've chosen to focus here on this final Sunday of 2020 with a hope that it may help to reorient us to what's most important. As we get ready to begin a new year, I think unpacking Jesus' prayer for us can give us the kind of reset I think we all might need. So let's explore what our great high priest prayed on this occasion just a few hours before he would offer himself up as a sacrificial offering for sin. Jesus speaks this prayer at the conclusion of a long conversation he'd been having with his 11 disciples that extends back to John chapter 13, just after Judas Iscariot left them. First, Jesus prays for himself, requesting glory. Look at John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, the first petition is, glorify your son. Looking upward to God in heaven is the normal prayer posture for Jews. It physically reminds us that God is above in heaven. 
Jesus mentions that the hour has come, the hour that he's been anticipating throughout the gospel, the hour of his death on the cross. Since the time has now come for him to offer himself as a sacrifice, he asks the Father to glorify him. It's appropriate for Jesus to ask this, as we'll see in a few verses, because Jesus has eternally shared the glory of God. So, even now, in this lowest of all moments of his human life, when he faces the shame of public crucifixion, he asks that the Father would glorify him. He's asking the Father that the, that the Father would enable him to finish his mission, to accomplish the work the Father sent him to do, so that the Father would then also receive glory or credit. Mission accomplished is the stamp Jesus wants to see across his life, and that will bring glory to his Father. He requests this because the Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. This is a fascinating statement. We recall that other passages in the New Testament reveal that the Son of God was involved in creating the universe and thus in creating humanity. As creator, the Father granted a certain kind of universal authority to His Son. Jesus is referring to something that happened before creation. The Father granted the Son a special kind of universal authority over all flesh. Because He has authority over all flesh, over every human being who ever has existed or ever will exist, Jesus says the purpose of this authority was that He would give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him. This statement takes us from the beginning of creation to the beginning of the new creation. The Father gave authority to the Son as co-creator in order that He might oversee and sustain all human life in this world. But the purpose of that authority was to be exercised on behalf of some within creation, to give them eternal life as part of a new creation. Here we're introduced to a reality that will be repeatedly pointed out in this prayer of Jesus. He speaks of all who have been given to Him, or all whom you have given Him. Thus Jesus knows of a group of people throughout history that comprise a unique gift that the Father is presenting to Jesus. The Father gives this gift of people to the Son so that the Son will then give to them eternal life. We'll come back to this idea and explore it further in just a few minutes. Jesus offers a summary definition of eternal life in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. True life, life that never ends, life that extends happily beyond death and goes on forever is all about knowing God and knowing Jesus. You can't know God if you don't know Jesus. This knowledge is not primarily an intellectual thing. It includes understanding who God is, but it also includes aligning your choices in such a way that you acknowledge the only true God. And it also includes a real intimacy 
that you experience as you share all of life with the only true God. He shares His life with us, and we share our life with Him. There's this intimacy that we're supposed to experience and invited to experience. So knowing God, knowing Jesus, having eternal life includes trusting Jesus Christ as the one God has sent to save sinners, and it includes obeying Him, following Him wherever He leads. It is knowing personally the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Being in a personal relationship with this God Being in a personal relationship with Jesus necessarily changes you, and it necessarily lasts forever because God lives forever, and He will not allow those who know Him to cease experiencing life with Him. Look now at verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus speaks here as though he's already died and risen from the dead. The betrayal has begun. The ball is rolling, and it is certain that within the next few hours, Jesus will be laid in a tomb, utterly silent, with no life in his body. Jesus repeats his first request for glory, but he specifies the kind of glory that he's talking about. The second petition is there in verse 5. Glorify the Son in your own presence with the glory that he had with you before the world existed. The unique glory that was shared between Father and Son for all eternity before creation, before the Son took on flesh and became a human, indeed before their were any humans, Jesus is asking to return to experiencing that kind of glory, but now with a human body. Amazing. In verse 6, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, the 11 men walking with him who are undoubtedly listening to his prayer. He has one primary concern for them, their holiness. But he unpacks this in terms of both protection and also obedience. Look at verses 6 to 8. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. What name has Jesus revealed? The name of God. What is that name? Yahweh. But didn't they know the name Yahweh from the Old Testament? Didn't Yahweh himself reveal his name to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3? Doesn't that name, Yahweh, appear some 6,000 times in the Old Testament itself? What's Jesus talking about here? The prophet Isaiah announced a time that would come when Yahweh would rescue the Jews from their exile and restore them to faithfulness. Isaiah 52.6 says, Therefore my people shall know my name. 
Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. That's translating the Hebrew into English pretty well. The Greek Old Testament has it a little differently. We could translate the Greek of Isaiah 52, 6 into English like this. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I am who speaks. In John's Gospel, on a few occasions, Jesus spoke the phrase, I am, all by itself, referring to himself, and the people around him reacted strongly. Remember John 8, 58 to 59, for example. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Apparently, the Jewish leaders heard Jesus claiming the name of God for himself by using the phrase, I am, like that. John's Gospel is all about how Jesus makes God known. John 1.18 set us up for this in the prologue of this Gospel. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made Him known. That was Jesus' mission, to make God known in a unique way, in a way much deeper than was possible during the Old Testament period. So when Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world, He's saying that He has done what the Father gave Him to do, sent Him to do. He is saying that He has shown these people who God is by showing His character, His name, in His words and His actions. Now, we come to explore this reference to people given to the Son by the Father. Jesus specifies here that these are people the Father gave to Him from out of the world. And He adds that these people belonged to God before. And now God has given them as a gift to the Son. This is both really important to understand and also really difficult to accept. Let's see if we can picture what Jesus is describing. The word world in John's Gospel is a very important word. It can be used in one of three different ways. On just a couple of occasions, it refers to the universe as created by God. Most often, however, it is used to refer to the world as it is now, fallen and broken. But even then, John uses it in two different ways. Sometimes it seems that he refers to the world as what I'll call the rebel base or the rebel kingdom. The world under the rule of Satan as a kingdom that opposes God and God's people. So the word world can refer to the realm of Satan. But often, the word world refers to people. It is a reference to the citizens of this rebel kingdom. World can refer to the rebel base itself as a place, but most often it refers to the rebels themselves. John 3.16 seems to use the word this way, "...for God so loved the world..." that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the rebel population. 
For God so loved His enemies that He gave His only Son. Love for rebels and love for the whole rebel kingdom moved God to send His Son to give eternal life to some of those rebels. Whoever believes in Him out of the world, out of the rebel kingdom, will experience eternal life. Thus, Jesus, in John 17, depicts the kingdom of rebels containing some rebels who belong to God already. From the theology of the whole Bible, I think we can simplify this discussion and refer to them as the chosen ones, rebels whom God freely chose to give as a gift to His Son. We can fill out the picture a bit if we remember Jesus' words in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So, before creation, knowing that humanity would rebel and become a kingdom of rebels ruled by Satan, the Father chose some of the rebels that He would give as a gift to His Son as human history unfolds. If the Father had not done this, no one would be saved. Every human being on the face of the planet would remain a rebel against God forever. Now, Jesus is focusing initially here on the 11 men listening to Him. They are the ones the Father has given Him out of the world. Jesus says that they have kept God's Word, which is remarkable when we think of how the disciples are described throughout the Gospels. They never seem to understand Jesus, and their twisted motives are often revealed. However, they have stuck around. They are still clinging to Jesus, even though they don't yet understand Him fully. Jesus does acknowledge what little they do know about Jesus now. They do realize that the Father has sent Jesus, and everything Jesus says and does comes ultimately from the Father. Look at verses 9 and 10. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. With the understanding of the world as the rebel kingdom, I think we can see why Jesus is not praying for it. Jesus cannot pray these things for rebels as long as they remain rebels. Commentator Don Carson writes these sobering words, "...to pray for the world, the created moral order in active rebellion against God, would be blasphemous. There is no hope for the world." But didn't we just read in John 3.16 that God's love for the world is what moved Him to send His Son? Yes, God loves the rebel kingdom and all the individual rebels in it. But in order for rebels to know God, in order for rebels to receive His special love, they must cease being rebels. Thus Carson goes on to add, there is hope only for some who now constitute the world, but who will cease to be the world and will join those of whom Jesus says for they are yours. We might wonder why Jesus wouldn't pray that the world would cease its rebellion. Why wouldn't Jesus ask the Father to change the world? 
In a certain subtle sense, Jesus is, in fact, asking for that very thing. But we need to hang on to this refusal of Jesus to pray for the world. It helps us recognize that the rebellious world will continue in rebellion until the end of human history, when at last Jesus will finally bring into complete existence the new creation, which he begins with these 11 men after his death and resurrection. Now, during Jesus' ministry, we can say that the Father gave these 11 men as a gift to Jesus, taking them out of the world in a certain sense, so that now they belong to Jesus, who has received them as the gift from His loving Father. But it's astounding that Jesus says here, I am glorified in them. Even their poor faith brings Him glory. And of course, He knows that they will bring Him greater glory through their ministry after they receive the Holy Spirit. But how encouraging for these 11 men to have overheard these words. In verse 11, Jesus turns to his next specific petition, but let's look at verses 11 and 12 together. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus took primary responsibility for protecting His disciples during His ministry as a good shepherd protecting His sheep. But now He is leaving them to continue the mission in the world. Who will protect them if Jesus is not there? Jesus asks the Father to do this. His third petition is for protection. Keep the disciples in your name. We've already pointed out how the request for God to keep the disciples has some connections back to the high priestly prayer of Aaron in the Old Testament. Regarding the high priestly garments made for Aaron, Exodus 28 verses 36 to 38 says... You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to Yahweh. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. So the high priest actually had the name of Yahweh on his forehead, on his turban. And if he didn't have Yahweh's name on his forehead, he could not bear the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. So the Father gives to Jesus the name, I Am, or Yahweh. And it is in that name that He has kept the disciples. Now... Jesus requests that the Father would keep the disciples in that name, in the name I Am. How does that work? I think Jesus is using a metaphor, again, drawn from the Old Testament. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 
You want to be safe? Run inside Yahweh's name. It's a strong tower that will protect you from all harm. Aaron's great high priestly prayer for Yahweh to keep the Israelites is now coming out in Jesus' prayer that the Father continue keeping His disciples. But with Jesus' claim that He has kept His disciples, He recalls Judas, whom He refers to as the son of destruction or the son of perdition. The word is a word that means to perish or to be destroyed, or to be lost. Judas was a man characterized by lostness, and therefore destined for destruction. The phrase probably means both of these ideas. The only other place this phrase appears in the New Testament is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, referring to the man of lawlessness, whom Paul says must be revealed before Jesus returns. This is striking to me, the identity of the man of lawlessness, who is usually connected to a final Antichrist figure, is never revealed in any specific way in Scripture, but this connection with Judas may suggest that this man will be someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus who eventually reveals his true nature as a betrayer and a deceiver, much as Judas did. Nevertheless, Jesus doesn't see Judas as an exception to his ability to protect his disciples, to keep them. Rather, Judas's defection and betrayal was a part of God's plan as well, announced clearly by Scripture. He's probably referring back to Psalm 41.9, which Jesus quoted back in John 13.18, while Judas was still at the table with them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Look at verses 13 to 16. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus repeats his request that the Father would keep the disciples, but this time he specifies in his fourth petition that he wants the Father to keep them from the evil one, to protect them from the onslaught of Satan. He repeats the reality that his followers are no longer rooted in the world. They haven't been taken out of the world completely. They still live in the world. But following Jesus means that our identity is no longer defined by the world or our place in it. We've got a new citizenship. Jesus emphasizes that he is not asking his father to remove his disciples from the world. Even though the world will be a place of constant hostility in the world, you will have tribulation. Jesus had promised the disciples just a bit before this prayer. He doesn't want the father to remove them from the world. Instead, He asks for their continued protection as they press on in a world that is hostile to them and to their mission. 
The world hates whomever is no longer of the world. The world cannot tolerate that which is foreign to it. And followers of Jesus are now foreigners in this world. Our lives are meant to run counter to the world's way of life. Jesus asks the Father to protect His disciples from the devil and His opposition. Rather than removal from the battlefield, Jesus insists that the disciples should remain in the world, continuing the mission that He began by the power of the Spirit who would come. And depending on the Father's almighty protection in response to this prayer of Jesus, we should not expect that God will remove His people from the world as long as His love for the world remains. In verse 17, Jesus turns to His fifth petition, still under the topic of praying for His disciples. Look at verses 17 and 19 together. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So, as Jesus asked the Father to keep them in His name and to protect them from the attacks of Satan, so positively He turns to ask that the Father would make them holy. He's asking the Father to set them apart to obediently carry on the holy mission that Jesus has begun. The Word of God will be their guide as they pursue this mission. Not only does Scripture guide them as they seek to complete the mission, but it also equips them for it by actually transforming them into morally holy people. The Word has a sanctifying power, a purifying effect, as the Holy Spirit applies the Word to our hearts. If you want holy hearts, you have to have heads full of God's truth. But it's Jesus' statement in verse 19 that's so crucial. As Jesus sends the disciples into the world to carry on His mission, Jesus says, For their sake I sanctify Myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Many of our English words use a different word like consecrate in verse 19. But the Greek word is precisely the same word as in verse 17. Jesus sanctifies, sets Himself apart for the sake of His disciples. This is some of that priestly language we talked about earlier, but it goes beyond. Normally, a priest would go through certain cleansing rituals in order to consecrate Himself, sanctify Himself for His priestly duties. But when Jesus adds that phrase, for their sake, He's using sacrificial language. He's borrowing language from the Old Testament again that suggests that he is consecrating himself not merely as a priest, but even as a sacrifice. He is setting himself apart to be the sacrificial victim who dies in place of his disciples. Normally, of course, a priest would sanctify an animal as the sacrificial victim and then lay it out on the altar to stand in for the people dying the death that they deserve to die as payment for their sins. Jesus is offering Himself. He will go to the cross willingly and lay down His own life of His own accord. He is both high priest and victim, so He must offer Himself. 
Now, Jesus takes a turn in verse 20. He transitions to praying specifically for all who will become Christians throughout history. That means that if you are a Christian today, you can be certain that Jesus was praying specifically for you. Be stunned by that. Let's look at verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The way he begins verse 20 suggests that the earlier requests for the disciples should also be extended for all Christians to come later. But in these verses, he focuses on one particular issue, unity. As his sixth petition, he prays that all Christians would be one. He compares the oneness he has in view to the oneness he experiences with his Father, a kind of mutual indwelling. How can we experience that kind of unity? In the Old Testament, the people of Israel pursued unity by the sacrificial system and the temple administration. The people were drawn together in unity by offering the same sacrifices for sins, by gathering together at the temple to celebrate the same festivals. And ultimately, they were united in their receiving forgiveness through the Day of Atonement rituals. The high priest was responsible to lead and cultivate this national unity as he led the proper practice of these rituals. But Jesus has replaced the high priest, and Jesus has replaced the temple, and Jesus has replaced all the festivals, and Jesus has replaced the sacrifices. So now, unity can only be experienced in Christ, in trusting Him and finding security and complete forgiveness in Him. When you're connected to Jesus by faith, you're connected to everyone else who is connected to Jesus by faith. The branches of the vine are all intertwined. Jesus says that the glory that the Father shares with Him as the eternal Son, He gives to believers, Christians. He shares what is His with us. This is almost unbelievable. This is what ultimately remedies our deepest needs. Romans 3.23 tells us what our deepest problem is as human beings. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to translate this verse a little more literally, however, to capture the fullness of what Paul has to say about us here. For all sin, as a normal course of our existence in this world, all sin and are lacking the glory of God. Every human being on the face of the planet sins regularly and repeatedly. This is what humans do by nature. We sin. And this proves that we lack God's glory. We don't have it. We can't see it. 
We can't comprehend it. We don't experience it, but we need it. So, Jesus, in this prayer, indicates that he shared it with us already. He continues to share God's glory with us forever. Jesus brings those who trust in him into the very family of God, a family that has eternally existed, even before creation, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The eternal family of God has eternally existed, full of love and mutual sharing and full joy. Human beings can be caught up into this family and experience the full love, sharing, and joy of God forever and ever. And that starts right now, folks. Our God is a sharing God. So in this life, during our sojourn in this world, how do we experience the glory that God has freely shared with us through Jesus? That's the point of Jesus' request. He asks that we may be one, that we may experience unity. Our unity as believers is the way we share, reflect, and experience God's glory, which has been given to us as a gift. Back in verse 11, that the disciples would be one was mentioned as a result of the Father protecting or keeping the disciples. There is a oneness, a unity granted to us as Christians that is true no matter how we live. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is a fact. All of the things that might divide us, ethnicity, status, gender, are no longer to be viewed as barriers or dividers among Christians. However, As Paul also indicated, there is a unity, a oneness that must be maintained. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 says, I therefore, as a a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, while in one sense our unity is an established fact that results from the one Spirit living in each Christian, at the same time we are called to maintain that unity, to live in light of it, to act like we're one, because we really are. In other words, be who you are. This lived-out unity, Jesus says in verse 23, has a byproduct. Seeing our lived-out unity is one way the Father draws individual rebels out of the rebel kingdom. As we express this unity in visible ways, we testify to the unbelieving world that the Father sent Jesus and that the Father has loved us just as he loved the Son. Would you marvel at that for a moment? Here we see a distinct kind of love. The love the Father shared with the Son for all eternity is now extended and shared with us. 
those who believe in Jesus. When we really believe God loves us that much, and in that way, how can it not radically change the way we live? Let's look at the final petition in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We get a glimpse here into eternity past before there was any created thing in existence. What was God doing back then? He was loving The Father was loving the Son in a perfect, deep, intimate relationship. The glory of that relationship is what Jesus wants His followers ultimately to experience. When will this take place? Fully, this will only take place after the resurrection of believers. He wants all believers, all together, to experience this glorious vision. In fact, John later indicates that it's the very seeing of the glorified Jesus that transforms us, that glorifies us on that day. Look at 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. When He appears refers to the return of Jesus to this earth. And that is when He will raise the dead in Christ and transform those who are alive in Christ and give us all together glorified bodies. It's at that moment that we will see Him with new eyes, new physical eyeballs, glorified eyes. And we will go on gazing upon His beauty forever and ever. Jesus' final petition is that we would be with Him wherever He goes, forever and ever. Finally, let's look briefly at those last two verses of this prayer, which actually don't include any requests. Verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. And these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them Your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He addresses his father as righteous or just here. I think this is fitting because throughout this prayer, Jesus has contrasted two groups of people, the world and those whom the Father has given to Jesus out of the world. These two groups of people are treated differently by God. And He is perfectly just, perfectly righteous in all His dealings with both the world and with those He has chosen out of the world to give as a gift to His Son. Jesus notes that the world does not know the Father. That's the third time in the last three chapters that Jesus has said that the world does not know the Father. John's Gospel also indicts the world for not knowing Jesus twice and for not knowing the Holy Spirit once. The world does not and cannot know God. The world cannot then experience the eternal life that God 
offers. But there remains hope for individual rebels in this rebellious world that they would receive this man, Jesus, who has come to offer himself as a sin offering. So what can we learn from this prayer and how can we apply it? First, we can raise the question, does the Father answer Jesus' prayer? Does the Father give what Jesus requests? Certainly he does. Recall John eleven twenty two, where a grieving Martha has this confidence about Jesus. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus then confirms this in his own prayer a few verses later. John eleven forty two. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The Father always hears the Son's prayers. The Son's prayers are always effective. Secondly, and flowing from this statement of Jesus that he was praying aloud publicly on account of the people standing around, Jesus prayed his prayer in John 17 aloud as his 11 disciples listened on. And then the contents of this prayer were recorded in Scripture for us. Surely that must imply that this this prayer is also intended to be a model for us. We should pray these same petitions. We can partner with Jesus in His praying. In fact, something like this is probably what Jesus has meant by instructing us to pray in His name, to pray with His priorities. These requests reveal Jesus' priorities. His own glory the disciples' protection and holiness, and the church's unity. Thirdly, we should rest in the security that this prayer offers us. The Son of God has asked the Father to keep us, to protect us. Even as Jesus promised that in the world you will have tribulation, here Jesus guarantees by His prayer for us that we will remain protected and safe throughout our journey in this world. Don Carson writes, But if the Christian pilgrimage is inherently perilous, the safety that only God Himself can provide is assured as certainly as the prayers of God's own dear Son will be answered. Specifically, Jesus has asked His Father to protect us from Satan. Never fear, dear Christian, that the devil can destroy you, devour you, or eliminate your faith. It is impossible. The Almighty, Sovereign, Lord of the universe is committed to protecting you at every moment of every day. We are truly safe. Fourthly, let's view our identity a bit differently. We are people kept in God's name. And even more fundamentally, we are the Father's gift to His beloved Son. Marvel. You and I are believers, Christians. God saved us as a gift of love from Father to Son. How valuable we are to God. But how much more valuable is the Son to the Father? a gift purchased by the willing offering of the Son's own blood. 
That is who we are as Christians. Finally, Jesus has prayed that Christians would experience an observable unity. Since Jesus has purchased our unity by his blood, he died to redeem a unified people. We really are one. That fact about our identity compels us to pursue unity in practice. Unity exists at multiple levels. First and foremost, we ought to pursue unity within this local body. That doesn't mean that we necessarily come to all the same theological conclusions about every point of doctrine and thus believe exactly the same thing about everything. However, it does mean that we seek to understand each other. It does mean that we remain committed to the gospel core about who Jesus is and how he fulfilled his mission by dying a sacrificial death on the cross and rising from the dead, victorious over death, sin, and Satan. Pursuing unity will also mean that we move toward each other. Even when we sin against each other, our unity will be evident, observable, when we forgive each other quickly. Secondly, there's a unity between Christians who go to different churches that have some different beliefs. This level of unity can best be displayed by a refusal to gossip about those people, a refusal to speak disparagingly about them because they come to some different conclusions about baptism or church leadership or music style or preaching style or political preferences. If we speak about them at all when they're not around, we can choose to speak about what's good and what we do have in common. None of that means that we deny that we disagree about certain things. Jesus has prayed for us. He has asked His Father to make us holy and to keep us holy. He has asked His Father to equip us with everything we need to pursue the mission Jesus has sent us into the world to accomplish. He has asked His Father to secure us eternally and to protect us from the devil day by day. And He has asked His Father to make us one, truly and permanently uniting us to Jesus and to each other forever and ever, and providing us with the ability to experience unity with each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. What a great high priest who prays for us. Even now, in heaven, He intercedes for us still. Since His will is always aligned with the will of the Father, we can be sure that the Father will always grant His requests on our behalf. Since He gives us access to the Father, too, we can pray to our Heavenly Father who loves to give good things to His children. As we enter 2021... Perhaps we could let these prayer priorities of Jesus shape and influence our praying in the new year. Let's pray for God to be glorified. Let's pray for our increased holiness. And let's pray for our greater unity. Pray with me now as I adapt this prayer from John 17. Father, the hour did come and it remains. Continue to glorify your Son that the Son may continue to glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave him to do. And now, Father, continue to glorify Jesus in your own presence with the glory that he had with you before the world existed. Jesus manifested your name to the people whom you gave him out of the world. Yours, the disciples were, and you gave them to him, and they kept your word. They knew that everything that you had given Jesus is from you, for he gave them the words that you gave him, and they received them and came to know in truth that Jesus came from you, and they believed that you sent Jesus. Jesus prayed for them. Jesus did not pray for the world, but for those whom you gave him, for they are yours. All those who belong to Jesus are yours, and yours belong to Jesus. And Jesus is glorified in them, and Jesus is no longer in the world. But they were in the world afterward, and Jesus came to you. Holy Father, you kept them in your name, which you gave to Jesus, that they would be one, even as you and Jesus are one. While Jesus was with them, he kept them in your name, which you gave him. He guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But then Jesus came to you, and he spoke those things in the world that they would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. He gave them your word, and the world hated them because they were not of the world, just as Jesus was not of the world. He did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They were not of the world, just as Jesus was not of the world. You sanctified them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent Jesus into the world, so he sent them into the world. And for their sake, he sanctified himself, that they also would be sanctified in truth. He did not ask for those only, but also for us who would believe in him through their word, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Jesus and Jesus is in you, that we also may be in you and Jesus so that the world may believe that you sent Jesus. The glory that you gave Jesus, he gives to us, that he may be one, that we may be one, even as you and he are one. Jesus in us, you in Jesus, that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent Jesus and loved us, even as you loved Jesus. Father, Jesus desired that we also, whom you gave him, may be with him where he is, to see his glory that you gave him because you loved him before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, Jesus knows you, and we know that you sent Jesus. Jesus made known to us your name, and he has continued to make it known that the love with which you love Jesus may be in us, and Jesus may be in us. Amen.